Let's just, uh, let's just pause for a moment and just uh, center ourselves as we come together around, uh, around God's word. Father, we thank you for your life-giving truth. Um, may your word be relevant and may it be living for us today. May it... Um, Produce fruit, a harvest in each of our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a few weeks ago, at uh, rather uh, short notice, I, um, I got a phone call to say that my grandmother, who's turning, or has turned 98, was ready to pass away. She live, uh, lived in the UK, and I was asked if I would go as a representative of our family here in Australia, to, if I would go and represent um, our family. So... I jumped on the plane, and uh, it's a 20-something-hour flight, and um, I did miss the plane, by the way, uh, which was uh, kind of put even more pressure on, because I was thinking, I'm definitely not going to arrive before she dies, but she she hung on for that extra, extra day, and um, anyway, that gave me uh, 20-something hours to sit down and start reading this book, uh, The the Holy Longing by uh, Ronald Rollheiser, which uh, we have been using as, a, I guess, our base um, resource for the new series, which uh, Shane uh, launched a couple of weeks ago called Spirituality and Ourselves. And I must say, it is just a, an absolutely outstanding, uh, outstanding book. Um, I would encourage you, if you haven't got a copy, um, uh, uh, grab, grab it. And uh, I just wish I'd come into contact with this book uh, earlier on in, in my, my faith journey. It would certainly have, um, it would certainly have uh, helped me immensely. Um, in the beginning of the book, uh, what Rollheiser suggests is that every one of us, every human being on the face of the planet has received a, a sacred gift, the gift of life, a sacred flame. And that gift of life that uh, is granted to us uh, manifests itself in the form of the shape of desire. That each one of us um, is, is driven by desire. And Rollheiser, if I, if I understand him correctly, that our spirituality is how we engage with our desires. It's a fundamental human condition. And we can take um, that drive, that desire that's inherent within each one of us, and we can, we can channel it and direct it in constructive ways and ways that facilitate our um, integration uh, as, a, as a human being and enable us to um, strengthen our connection with God and with one another. Or we can take our desire, our drives that we have, and we can channel those desires and those longings in, uh, in destructive ways, ways that um, dehumanize us, uh, ways that um, 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 de- deteriorate or work against our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And as um, Rollheiser points out that actually there's nothing inherently wrong with desire. But we are called as, as human beings to um, take 
our desires and the invitation of, uh, of, of Scripture is providing us um, ways in which we can curate those desires in healthy and helpful ways for us and uh, for this world in which we live. And what um, Roel Heiser consistently emphasises throughout this book, that sitting behind each one of our drives and desires, whether they be the drive and the desire for success, for position, for uh, status, uh, for, for wealth, for friendship, for um, sexual intimacy, what, what, regardless of what the drive is, that sitting behind those longings and those urgings is, an, is in fact a fundamental longing for God. Sitting behind all of our desire, that desire for and seeking to gain meaning from sexual intimacy, for new experiences in this Melbourne um, and the inner north gives us plenty of opportunity for new experiences. The, the longing, the desire for wealth and status and success and friendships, there sits behind all of that. There is something far deeper and something far grander. That they're actually pointing us towards our longing for connection with God. And so I spent quite a few hours um, um, in between the lovely meals that you have in, in, um, in uh, uh, economy class uh, on a long-haul flight, um, reading this book and digesting it and allowing um, the wonderful truths that are presented uh, in here to, to sink in. And when I got off the plane in the UK, um, what I stepped into was not only a family that were grieving the loss of my grandmother, but... I stepped into a set of situations in which um, my family were also grieving a number of acts of, um, of infidelity that had, um, that had occurred. And there was a lot of anger and resentment and, and pain being felt by those who had been betrayed by those that they loved who'd acted unfaithfully towards them. And everyone, it seemed, wanted to process um, their pain with the clergyman, the man of the cloth, the vicar of Dibley, you know. Um, uh, this kind of, uh, they, I'm sure they were anticipating I was going to get off the plane with a, you know, a, a black cloak and a, and a white collar. Um, but they all wanted to sit down and, and, and talk about what had what had been happening, what had happened over a, over a long period of time uh, with this, this religious man from the nether edges of the, uh, of the Commonwealth and, and chat about it over a gin and tonic. I was happy to do that, uh, do the gin and tonic kind of thing. And what I found incredibly, uh, incredibly challenging was um, I'd been engaging with Rollheiser. And I just wasn't quite sure how to say that these narcissistic individuals who'd um, committed adultery were actually, in fact, human beings just like they were. 
But rather than trying to find love and beauty and connection with God and meaning in life through the drive for money and possessions and status symbols such as houses and really nice cars and careers and having a great reputation in the community as these folks were, that these other individuals within the family um, were channeling their eros. They were taking that desire, which Rollheiser points out is a yet unrecognized craving for God and a life of meaning through a series of illicit yet unhelpful relationships. I, I, I wasn't quite sure how I could kind of say that in, in language that would be um, helpful or palatable to them because um, from their perspective, they were the victim and these other folks um, weren't so nice. I didn't quite know how to say in language that they could comprehend that every one of us, every human being is actually a recipient of God's sacred flame. And each one of us are driven by desire, which can and in most cases is actually channeled in very unhelpful and healthy ways. It just so happens that in some cases, it's more destructive than others. And so with that as our backdrop this morning, it's interesting that the, the uh, text that was assigned to me today was John chapter 4, and the story of um, uh, Jesus' interaction uh, with a woman at the well. And what we're going to do is we're going to engage with this story a little this morning to help us identify how we can begin to identify what it is that sits at the core of our life and what is perhaps driving us. So would you like to come and uh, read this for us? John, John 4, let's do 4 to 30. Thanks, mate. 4 to 30? Okay. <laughs> Good. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came, this is Jesus, by the way. So he came to the, into a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as, oh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will, I will not be thirsty and have to, uh, to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is for the Jews. But that hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will be worshipping the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled at what he was talking, talking with a woman, <laughs> with, with woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Um, I I love this story. I absolutely love it. Um, One, because uh, it... It introduces us to the subject of worship, which is something that I personally kind of really uh, resonate with. Um, and the Greek word uh, for worship, uh, the word is uh, proskuneo, and it literally means to kiss like a dog licking the master's hand. And for those of you who have, uh, who have a dog, you'll know what it's like to have that um, animal come up as, a, as, as, as the owner for that dog to show its affection and to show its appreciation and ex- acknowledgement of your uh, role as master in their life when they come and just lick your hand. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But we're not going to go into that today. Um, I just love it because of the interaction that takes place between uh, Jesus and this woman. 
because everything about her suggests that she should be disqualified from having an encounter with Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing in her life that, that suggests that she's a great candidate for the kind of conversation that begins to unfold in, uh, in, this, in this story. For a start, um, as a Samaritan, um, she's considered uh, racially or culturally inferior. Um, Samaritans were thought of as kind of being a um, sort of an inbred hillbilly from out in the hills somewhere uh, by, by the Jews, you know, the folks that we have some, um, some uh, kind of connection to, but we're rather embarrassed by them, so we won't even speak to them. Then um, Samaritans uh, were also considered by Jews to be religious heretics. Um, they only accepted the first five uh, books of the Old Testament, and they had developed uh, uh, and created a rather distorted view or version of, of, of Jewish faith. So culturally, uh, religiously, she, uh, she didn't meet the standard. Um, not only was she a Samaritan, um, but she was also a woman. And in verse 27, it says that the disciples were surprised to find him talking with a woman. I mean, within our cultural context, that just seems incredibly, uh, incredibly strange. But as we're probably aware that in that, in that era, um, uh, women were classed as second-class citizens. Uh, a, Pharise- a prayer of the Pharisees of that time was, I thank you, O God, that I am not a Gentile. I thank you, O God, that I am not a dog. And I thank you, O God, that I am not a woman. Um, so that was the kind of um, uh, uh, status that uh, woman had in, in, in that day and age. And then um, she was morally inferior uh, she lived quite a colourful life, um, more than likely, as is inferred um, through this text. Um, she had lived quite a promiscuous life. And yet to Jesus, her racial, cultural, religious background, her agenda, and her moral code meant nothing to him. And I just love that. There was nothing about this woman's life that created a barrier between her and God. And he related to her as a woman, as a human being, made in the image and likeness of God, who was equally loved and respected as he would do with anybody else. And if we are ever going to encounter Christ, and if we're ever going to allow him to sit at the center of our lives, if we're ever going to come to a place where our desires are transferred from unhelpful and healthy places and transferred and brought into a place where our desires are directed towards Christ, we first have to understand that it's by grace that nothing qualifies us and nothing disqualifies us because 
It's the initiative of Christ. And there's nothing in our lives that we can do that can disqualify us from being recipients of God's love and affection. We have to get that so grounded into not only our theological, academic brain, but that needs to come and sit in our emotions in order that we can place Christ front and center of our life, our lives and direct our desires towards him. In verse 10, Jesus said to this lady, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We need to appreciate that Christ comes to us as a gift and he positions himself before each and every one of us as a gift to be received. The next thing is that we also need to um, put ourselves in a place like this woman did where we are alone with the Christ. Uh, This lady is undertaking um, an an ordinary but quite arduous kind of everyday task, uh, drawing water from a deep well and taking it back home to the family uh, where that water would be used for drinking, for cooking, for cleaning, for, uh, for, for bathing. But what this um, story um, indicates is that she comes at the sixth, well, it says the sixth hour, which is, which is noon. And traditionally, water was, was collected by the women of the village in community, either early in the morning or later in the day when it was when it was cool. But this woman is a, a moral and social outcast. Not only is she considered an outcast because she's Samaritan by the Jews, but by her own community, she's actually been rejected and she sits on the margins of her own community because of her promiscuous lifestyle. And she's alone. It's highly unlikely that this conversation with Jesus would ever emerge if she had been surrounded by the other women of the village. But the circumstances of her life wonderfully conspired to lead her to a place where she finds herself alone with Jesus. And we somehow need to create settings of silence for ourselves where it's just us and Jesus. Pascal once said that our miseries ultimately stem from the fact that we cannot sit still in a room for one hour. We're so consumed with filling our lives with stuff and with distractions and with busyness and with projects and with people and with experiences that we sit Christ on the margins of our life and we don't give ourselves an opportunity to hear from him. And so what we need to do is we need to understand 
that God is incredibly, incredibly gracious. That Jesus comes to each one of us as a gift. There's nothing that we have said or done that will disqualify us from Christ. But we need to put ourselves in places where it's just us and Jesus. And when that occurs, what we see happening uh, in this dialogue between Jesus and this woman is he keeps pointing to her deeper needs. And throughout the conversation, she's responding in essence by saying, look, I'm, I'm not spiritually thirsty. My life would be great if I just had a tap in my kitchen where I could uh, have water so I don't have to keep coming up here to this well uh, to, do, to draw water. And that's kind of the, the, as you look through this conversation, what actually takes place is Jesus is pointing towards her deeper need and she wants to maintain the conversation at a surface level. But in verses 16 and 17, it gets to the crux of the conversation. And Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. And she replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have, have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus is saying to this lady, lady, you know, you don't think you are spiritually thirsty, but you need to know that you are desperately, desperately dehydrated. And the issue that's been driving your life is men, that you have been seeking to satisfy your longing for intimacy, for closeness, for acceptance, for significance, for love, and for approval from a source other than myself, and it's failing you, and it always will. I've got to be honest, when I've, when I've um, preached on, on this verse, uh, this, um, this story in the past, uh, so often I've framed it, or I've heard others frame it around that this woman was living an immoral life, and what Jesus did was Jesus exposed her sin and um, she repented and she ran off to tell everyone else the good news. But what Raul Heiser has helped me to see is that actually Jesus doesn't talk about her sin. Jesus wasn't interested in her sin. What he did was he exposed her thirst. Because what ends us in sin or leads us to sin is actually desire. It's our thirst, our drive that leads us to unhelpful or unhealthy places. And what Jesus does he doesn't expose her promiscuity or her unrighteousness. What he targets is what is driving and motivating her.
her life and has left her in such a dry and parched place. That drive that was dominating her life and separating her from true love and true beauty and, and then... Her promiscuity, just like the infidelity of uh, my family members, is actually a sign of a deep, deep loneliness and alienation and a hungering for, for something far more meaningful than sex. What it actually points to, what it actually speaks to, into is of a desire and of a drive, of a longing for God. And what I find just so incredibly beautiful um, in this text, it's come, it's come alive to me again, is that Jesus invites the woman at the well, just as he invites us, to transfer our desire away from those things which ultimately cannot satisfy us and transfer those desires and place them upon him and place him at the center and the longing of our life. And what Jesus suggests happens as we transfer or redirect our desire, what he says will take place is that there is, an, and, and um, Eugene Peterson in the message says, that there will burst forth from within us an, an artesian spring, a wellspring of life will emerge from within us that will satisfy the longing and the craving of our soul. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to uh, England next year um, to sit down with my family. By then I hopefully will have found some kind of non-religious language um, that I can use to sit down with my family to help them understand um, these concepts and these truths. But the reality is, for each and every one of us, behind our drives and desires, there is something far deeper than what is presented. There is, sitting behind those drives and desires, a longing for connection with God. And what Jesus wants to do, like he did with the woman at the well, is show us those false longings those unhelpful longings, not to condemn us. He's not coming from a place of law, but from a place of grace. He wants us to take time out to be alone so that we can shift and begin to channel and direct our desires around him. And that's not to say that we will remain, uh, from that point we will remain celibate and that we won't um, have wealth or success or possessions or anything like that. Um, it's just that those things won't have us. 
Amen. Vanna, did you want to just conclude with that wonderful little C.S. Lewis thing that you shared with me just before the service? The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't know. It's worth reading, honestly. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs>